You're listening to Season 6, Episode Number 2 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I talk about the language of mission. Where did we get the definitions and the modern understanding of words such as mission, missions, and missionaries? So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Well, hey, welcome back to episode number two, season six of Strike the Match. I cannot believe that we're in the sixth season. I know I said that in the previous episode, and it is very much the case. Looking forward to having some uh, new and exciting guests on the um, on the program this season, and at the same time, continuing the series that I launched with episode number one that uh, was posted a couple weeks ago, talking about the apostolic imagination. And uh, today I'm going to be addressing another topic related to the apostolic imagination in this series that I'm doing, and um, I'll give you a little more detail of where we're going to go in just a second, but hey, again, I just want to say, as I've said before, thank you all for listening. I appreciate your comments, suggestions, encouraging words that you have shared with me, uh, whether it's through email or direct message, or maybe uh, we called each other somewhere at a conference one time or something like that, and I just want to say that your your words of encouragement related to this uh, podcast uh, truly truly mean a lot to me, and so thank you so much. And uh, if you like this, please pass this on to someone in your social network, someone in your circle of influence, and let them know about uh, Strike the Match talking about all things related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Hey, I want to give you folks another sort of update announcement. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with what I'm going to share with you, but uh, many of you may not be. And so uh, let me just throw it out there. So uh, for some time now, I have been sort of... um, I don't like the word experiment, but I guess in a way that's kind of what it is. Uh, But I've been uh, sort of dabbling in the realm of uh, video uh, content. And uh, several years ago, uh, I I can't even remember how long ago it was. I mean, I was was teaching at at Southern Seminary. That would have been... um, uh, been in Birmingham for eight years now, so wow, I mean, that, that may have been over eight years ago, and uh, I actually had a YouTube ch- YouTube channel, and I would just post random uh, interviews that I had with folks, and, and you can see some of them uh, on my YouTube channel, uh, but within the past, um, I don't know, year or so, uh, I, I've started going back to uh, doing doing some videos, and, um, you know, my plan is to continue to do so if, uh, if that is uh, of benefit to uh, the folks uh, that are out there, including you folks that are listeners to Strike the Match, and so I don't know if you uh, prefer to venture into the realm of video or not, but I want you to know that I do have a YouTube channel, 
And uh, you can just search for my name, J.D. Payne, at, um, at YouTube, and you'll find my smiley, happy face there. I think the, uh, the actual um, site may be attributed to my full name, Jervis D. Payne. Uh, but if you just search J.D. Payne, that'll come up. Um, some of the things that I've been doing lately, uh, one thing is uh, I, I, every now and then I will do a This Week in Mission History video. And it's usually related to something that has been a significant issue in the history of uh, the church uh, during that particular week, whatever week it happens to be. And so... Uh, there was one week that uh, I did a video uh, related to uh, the 1974 Lausanne Congress on Global Evangelization that really launched the Lausanne movement that many of us uh, are still influenced by today. And then uh, just recently, just a few weeks ago uh, in uh, early August, I did one on David Brainerd. Uh, that it was that particular week that in David Brainerd's uh, diary, he records this incredible move of the Spirit of God among the Native American population that he was serving among in New Jersey. And so did a video on, on Brainerd. You may want to check that out. Uh, but then again, I do other things, not just looking at mission history. Uh, the most recent video I posted at the time of this podcast recording is one that I just did on house churches and cell churches. So if any of that is of interest to you, I'm going to encourage you to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe over there so that you will uh, get information uh, when videos are posted. Uh, of course, if, you, uh, if you're not uh, getting my blog posts, I'm going to encourage you to go to jdpain.org and just subscribe with your email and you will be notified when I post uh, a, a new blog post that will come directly to you. And uh, for those of you that are on Instagram, you may want to check out what I'm doing on Instagram. It's J underscore D underscore pain. Uh, I, you know, of course, I do the thing that most of you all do post the pictures of your sunsets and your kids' events and the things that you like to post and talk about that. I don't know why we do what we do. You know, why do I post a picture of my, you know, favorite coffee? <laughs> you know, um, but at the same time, I have been doing these mini lectures. So 60, 60 seconds or less lecture. My, my students would love it if that was the content of my or the time of my lectures at Samford. Um, but uh, these brief lectures I do periodically uh, related to some sort of topic uh, dealing with um, uh with uh, missions evangelism, uh, the Christian walk. And so uh, if that's of interest to you, you may want to check that out over at my Instagram account. So anyhow, uh, I don't have commercials on this program, so I guess if you want to call that a commercial, there you go. That's my commercial. So where are we going today, folks, uh, with this topic? Well, here's the thing. And it, it, I am surprised that... It's really taken this long for evangelicals, at least within the United States context, to, to begin to talk and think about this issue of language of missions, the language of mission, if I should say that. Um, I'm not saying that this is anything new that hasn't come up before, but I'm just surprised at, at how little traction it has received, but yet how significant it is over time. So... 
so today, for example, the word mission, missions, missional, and missionary are used in a variety of ways. Now, generally speaking, mission means or is referencing God's mission in the world. Sometimes the Latin phrase missio dei will be used. And, and that's generally agreed upon in many, uh, many circles, not just in evangelical circles, but even in mainline circles, uh, even Roman Catholic circles and conciliar uh, circles as well. Mission seems to be that gr- agreed upon understanding God's mission in the world. But then again, you start listening to other people and individuals and you find out, okay, maybe not everyone is talking about mission in the same way. But especially... When you get to terms like missions, with a little s, that generally refer to the actions that the church engages in as she participates in the mission of God. Uh, the word missional and the word missionary, when you, th- when you listen to those latter three words in conversations, in books, conferences, events, read blog posts, read an article, and you will find a multitude of definitions for missions, missional, missionary. Uh, in fact, going back to the word missional, I mean, uh, uh, Craig Van Gelder and uh, Dwight Shelley, uh, uh, Shelley, sorry, uh, wrote a book called The Missional Church in Perspective. And in this book, they trace uh, the different streams of, of how the word missional is used. So here's the thing. Language is incredibly important. Language is critical to the Christian faith. Specifically related to our conversation today, the things that we're thinking about is the issue of the language of mission. And I will, I'll, I'll give you a quote here from Michael Stroop. I'm going to reference him a little bit more in just a second. He wrote uh, this weighty uh, book that just came out uh, just recently called Transcending Mission, The Eclipse of a Modern Tradition, in which he looks at the language of mission, where it came from. And uh, I'll be drawing from him in just a second, but I'll give you a quote from Stroop just to get us started here, and that is, he makes a statement and talks about the importance of the discussion of language, that it's not a needless exercise, and that we must recognize that, quote, mission language forms particular ideas and notions that shape identity and purpose that determines why and how we act. Now, what he's getting at there is exactly what anthropologists will tell, tell you, and that is the, the words we use, the, the, the terms we use, the definitions to which we assign those words, they influence our thinking, and not only our thinking, but the way we view the world around us, and ultimately, they affect the way we act. So our language does mean something more than just words on a page. And so today, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to give you my argument up front, just so that you know where I'm going in this episode. I want, I want to be clear on this, because some of the things that I'm going to be talking about and getting into uh, are, are I think on the acad- are, you know, on the weightier side of some of the academic matters because they've got a lot of historical context that's there. But at the same time, I want to be clear and let you understand where I'm going from the outset. So here's my argument. My argument is this. If 
if an exegetical theology, in other words, the way that we look at the Scripture and come to study a passage, study passages from Genesis to Revelation, and from that develop our biblical theology, if an exegetical theology cannot be developed from the Scriptures, if it can't come from the Scriptures and church context determines what the church does, then mission and missions and missionaries, and I would even say missional, will be defined differently in every generation as societal shifts occur. What do I mean by that? Basically what I'm saying is that if we begin to say, all right, the, the words mission, missions, missional, missionaries, if we can't find them in the scripture and we can't build a theology off of that, then what's going to happen is the church is going to find her understanding of her purpose and what she's supposed to do being determined by the contextual realities in which she finds herself, the societal needs in which she finds herself, whether she is in Central Asia in the 1950s or whether she is in the southwestern part of the United States in the 21st century or whether she's in the first century in the Middle East, if we cannot allow the scriptures to develop our theology of understanding what the church is supposed to be engaging in and doing when it comes to the advancement of the gospel, then what will happen is that society will determine the definitions for the church and how the church will act will be based upon the shifting patterns of the day and time. And I think that as I talk through this, you're going to see what I mean by this. So let's, let's begin by, by then moving into asking the question, well, where did the language of mission come from? I mean, I think that that is incredibly important. We, we often assume, all right, well, hey, it, it, it came from the Bible. And, and while there is an element of truth to that, I mean, clearly we see Great Commission, we see Make Disciples, Preach uh, the gospel, we see bearing witness, we see these things in the scriptures, being a, a light and salt and always giving a hope for the, 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 always giving a reason for the hope that we have. All, you know, all of these things that are there in the scriptures, we see those things there. But as far as language is concerned, the common expressions that we use today, mission, missions, missional, missionaries, those are not in the Bible. They are not found in the Old Testament. They're not found in the New Testament. I mean, yes, the language of sending is, is there in both the Hebrew and also in the Greek, but, but the language of, of those terms, the, those terms being used, mission, missions, missional, missionary, those are a modern development in church history, if I can say modern development. I'm, I'm really basically going to take us back about 500 years. So where, where did all this come from? Well, again, I'm going to point you to Michael Stroop's book. It is a, it's a weighty academic treatise uh, that recently came out, Transcending Mission, the Eclipse of a Modern Tradition. And I think his historical study is incredibly helpful. 
I mean, he spends several hundred pages uh, dealing with the issue of, of mission language, where it came from, how it developed. Um, some of his conclusion, I some of his conclusions, I I like, but I don't feel like he takes it far enough. I don't feel like he moves us to the realm of talking about the apostolic work of the church, and I'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, and so, so Stroop, I'm going to point you to Stroop, but at the same time. I want you to think about some things with me, and I'm going to draw some of these out of his book for you. I'll try to simplify about 400 and, I don't know, 60 pages of his book for you, or at least <laughs> at least a, a certain portion of that, not the whole book. But here's the thing. When we begin to look at the language of mission throughout church history, what we find is that for about the first 1,500 years, the language of mission was related to the interworkings of the Trinity. So you have the Father sending, there's that mission language, the uh, Father sending the Son, the Son and the Father engaged in sending the Spirit. You see uh, early writers uh, throughout uh, the the church, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Augustine, uh, Aquinas, writing about mission in the sense of what was taking place within the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's relationship. It, it wasn't applied to the, the, the people of God, the, the crossing cultural gaps, going to uh, the nations and, and, and planting churches. It, it, was, it was something that was, that was related to the inner workings of the Trinity. The, the modern meaning of the term mission or missions actually comes onto the scene in the 16th century. So we have to get to the 16th century with uh, Ignatius Loyola, uh, who took the language of mission of his day, both the theological aspect and the contemporary understanding of mission of his day, and he changed it. He shifted it. He, he, he did what Stroop talks about as being an innovation with the language, and he applied it to the Society of Jesus, or the group that is also known as the Jesuits. And so during Ignatius' day, the language of mission also meant, not just something related to the Trinity, but it also meant political and military actions in other countries. And before Ignatius, the expansion of the faith, uh, you know, it was talked about, it was used, but it, the language of mission wasn't a part of that. Uh, language such as propagating the Christian faith or going to the infidel or going on pilgrimage or proclaiming or communicating the good news, those, those were the common expressions dealing with this Great Commission aspect that, that we're thinking about. Very early, mission came to mean in, in Ignatius' day, so in, in the 16th century, very early it, with his development and application of the, the term mission and missions and eventually missionary, it came to mean being sent wherever the Pope desired to send the Jesuits. And mission included going to serve Christians. It wasn't, in fact, the first folks that were sent out were actually sent out on mission, if you will, were sent to to reform a monastery. So the first usage was even related to doing something for believers. Uh, you see, very shortly after, uh, or actually during Ignatius's day, 
uh, Francis, Francis Xavier, uh, the first Jesuit. He was the first one to travel beyond Europe, to actually go to India as a part of mission language. And this was still in the 16th century. Uh, he was not the first, obviously, to go out and cross cultural gaps and things like that, uh, to leave Europe. I mean, you see, you see Cyril and Methodius and others. But it was during this time that, or during his time, Francis's time, that those carrying the gospel to unbelievers began to be called missionaries. Now, by the 1700, or by, excuse me, by 1700, so the 18th century, right at the beginning of the 18th century, the Jesuits numbered more than 20,000, and they were dedicated to sharing and defending the Christian, excuse me, dedicated to defending and sharing the Catholic faith throughout the world. It, it was in the 17th century, so going back to the 17th century, the, the Franciscans picked up on this term. They, they used it to not only describing the spread of the faith, term of language of mission, but also to even talk about their outposts. So it is, it is a very short leap from how the Franciscans used it to the expression that later we, we hear about called mission stations. So they applied mission to, to their, their compounds, their, their, their mission outposts, if you will. So that's very quick background on the Catholic usage, usage of the word, where it originated. But um, what about Protestants? So Protestants adopted the words such as mission and missionary in the early 18th century. And it was commonly used in the 19th century. Now, there were several reasons for this. There were several reasons for the delay in the adoption. And part of it is going all the way back to the Reformation, and that is Protestants saw mission and the language that was being used and the actions that were attached with that terminology, that language, as being Catholic. And so they did not want to have anything to do with that. There were other things they were concerned about, first and foremost. And at the same time, they saw the language throughout 1,500 years of church history as being related to that which was going on within the inner workings of the Trinity. However, here's what's interesting. Protestants, when the Protestant countries, the countries that were obviously not considered Roman Catholic European countries, so to speak, when Protestant countries entered into global trade, global expansion, and colonialization, that's when Protestants began to use the language of mission. You see, the Catholic countries had already been engaged in global expansion, global trade. They were engaging in, in colonialization, and they were using such terminology. And so there was this notion that was with the Catholic, Catholic Church as well as with the Protestants as well, and that is this notion of Christianization and civilization going hand-in-hand hand across the world. And so as the, as the merchant, merchant ships would travel the world, and the military ships would travel often to allow the merchants to be able to do what they needed to do and set up colonial outposts in new worlds, so to speak, being discovered, so to speak, by Europeans. You also have not only commerce and military, but you have missionaries, or the phrase using the um, alliteration of merchants, military, and missionaries went hand-in-hand hand with one another. 
And so uh, even, even in fact, the, the first use of the word uh, uh, missions related to, or in the English language, and the English translation of it was with Francis Bacon. This was in the 17th century, and, and he used it describing uh, things related to that aspect of colonialization. So you see Protestants picking up the language of mission as the Protestant countries of Europe begin to move into the globe, what would become their global market, if you will, and with colonialization. And so early mission work and mission societies that came out during those times of, of, of expansion, they were primarily started for the care of settlers from England and not for evangelism. They, many mission societies originally started as a result of being there for Christians, helping out the Christians. Now, eventually that transitioned, but in the beginning, uh, such was, was related to being there for uh, the colonists. It was in 1704, so we get to 1704, the Danish Holly Mission explicitly tied mission language with reaching non-Christians in foreign countries. And this was the first mission society to use mission in its title, Danish Holly Mission of 1704. Now, the Danish Holly Mission's influence became very strong throughout Protestantism. One particular group that was really um, influenced by the Danish Holly Mission's missionary work were, were the Moravians. So Count Zinzendorf, who was the overseer of the Moravian church on his estate there in Saxony, a state called Hernhut, uh, he and the Moravians picked up the language of mission and they began using it widely. And the Moravian church was one of the, is one of the great stories of, of missionary movement throughout church history. Uh, in fact, uh, I have written on this on my blog uh, I've written about this in, in some of my books, and um, and I think there's even an episode uh, in uh, in or on Strike the Match related to the Moravians as well. Uh, if not, <laughs> if not, there needs to be. Uh, but the Moravians they used the language and they, they used it widely. Uh, you know, according to Stroop, he he makes uh, he makes a really powerful statement. He says just as Ignatius innovated mission language for Roman Catholic, for the Roman Catholic order. It was Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians that introduced mission as ecclesial language for Protestants. And so what time period are we talking about? We're in the 18th century now. After 87 years, so 87 years following the Danish Holly Mission that was established in 1704, then you begin to see things pick up and change. So, for example, 87 years later, after the Danish Holly Mission, you have the Baptist Missionary Society of Britain that was started in 1792, using that language. You have the London Missionary Society that was started in 1795. You have the Edinburgh and Glasgow Missionary Societies that were started in 1796. You have the Church Missionary Society, which was Anglican, started in 1799. And you have the Wesleyan Missionary Society, started in 1813. So soon thereafter, the language of mission begins to come into the realm of Protestant advancement of the gospel. But yet there's that history connected to 
things related to colonialization, expansion of trade, things related to going and serving, helping Christians, but then at the same time shifting gears to begin to advance the propagation of the gospel in foreign parts. And, and so even from the very beginning, you, you begin to see this, this language and development that Protestants took from Catholics and that Catholics developed within the 16th century, particularly with uh, Ignatius, uh, that that was related to this moving forward, this sending, this going forth, if you will. Now, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit, and and I want to get on kind of I want to kind of bring things out of the historical context and, and kind of bring it up a little bit to to where we are today. And in order to do that, I want us to think a, a little bit about the issue of defining mission and and what's going on today. I believe one of the most influential works in the past few decades has been David Bosch's book, Transforming Mission. I, I continue to see it, even though it was published in 1991. It's continually referenced today. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser, uh, matter of fact, uh, in 2010 made the statement that uh, Bosch's work, Transforming Mission, Paradigm Shifts in, mission, in Theology of Mission, Van Hooser said that Bosch's book was one of five essential theology books of the past 25 years. And he made that statement in 2010. In Bosch's book, and, and it's like Stroop, Bosch's book is a weighty academic tome. It's, a, it's, it's incredibly extensive in its footnotes. It is, uh, uh, I don't know, it's... Uh, 460, I don't know, 70 pages, something like that. Um, what, what's Bosch's book about? Well, basically what Bosch is doing in this book is he is looking, starting in the first century, he looks at how the understanding of mission has gone through these paradigm shifts in 2,000 years. And the theological undercurrents, the theological foundations that support those paradigm shifts and why those paradigm shifts occurred in, in 2,000 years of, of church history. Um, listen to some of the things that, that Bosch writes in this book related to understanding mission. He, he believes, he believe, of course he, he passed away several years ago, but he believes that mission is something that the church is always going to lack clarity on. And so let me, get, let me just read you some from his book and summarize some things from his book for you. Bosch writes the following. He says, attempts to define mission are of recent vintage. Very true. The early church undertook no such attempts, at least not consciously. More recently, however, it has become necessary to design definitions of mission in a more conscious and explicit manner. Since the 19th century, such attempts have been legion. And, and he's exactly right. I mean, we, we don't see a great deal of discussion uh, until that time period. And I would say it was in the 20th century that the church really begins to get serious about thinking about the theology of mission. And yet at the same time, in the 20th century, you still have this breakdown in understanding what is mission, what, are, what, is, what is missions, what are missionaries supposed to be doing, and then the short-lived missional church movement 
um, that language began to fragment just within a few years after the movement got off the ground in 1998 with Daryl Gooder's publication of the Missional Church book. So here's the thing that Bosch is getting at in his book. He basically is talking about the fact that the historical bridge going all the way back to the first century is so great that readers are at a loss. He, he says that historical critical study might be helpful to understand mission according to each biblical writer, but he says such knowledge, quote, will not immediately tell us what we must think about mission in our own concrete situation, uh, end quote. Bosch's reasoning for this is that there are many uh, what he calls valid interpretations, and the meaning of a text cannot be reduced to a single univocable sense in what it originally meant. Basically what he says, and I'm quoting from Bosch, mission remains undefinable. And he basically spends 500 pages of a book explaining that statement to come to the end of the book and basically say the same thing. Now, what he says in his book is that the most the church can hope for is to formulate some kind of what he calls approximations of what mission is all about. And, and it's, it's his lack of confidence in the scriptures. And, and he, comes, uh, he comes away with, uh, he, argue, he says he has a high view of scripture. And to read some of his writings, you, you clearly would believe that. But at the same time, he has been influenced by higher critical study. And so in Bosch's mind and in his writings, cultural context will overshadow any kind of biblical certainty. In other words, the shifting cultural context in which we find ourselves throughout 2,000 years of church history affects not only the way the church understands mission, but affects the DNA, the fundamental aspect of mission. So what do you, what do you get? Well, he basically says, and I'll give you another quote here from Bosch, he says, the Bible is not to be treated as a storehouse of truths on which we can draw at random. There are no immutable and objectively correct laws of mission to which exegesis of Scripture gives us access and which provides us with blueprints we can apply in every situation. Our missionary practice is not performed in unbroken continuity with the biblical witness it is an altogether ambivalent enterprise executed in the context of tension between divine providence and human confusion. So what is he getting at? He basically says we cannot simply look back to the Bible and see what is described there because he would argue in the New Testament, for example, there are conflicting views of mission. And missions. And we should talk not so much of a theology of mission, but we should talk about theologies of mission. That Luke differs from Paul, and Luke has his theology of mission, and Paul has his theology of mission. And part of the reason why they differ is because they're in different cultural contexts at different times. And the culture and context is what is fundamental, and it's always shifting, and the church has the liberty and freedom to understand and define mission and therefore her actions based on what the culture dictates to her at that moment. Now, Bosch would clearly say, okay, there are, there are, we can't just have an anything goes approach. And there are 
fundamentals of Scripture, but he's he's he he begins to when he begins to move into the direction of culture dictating definitions. That is when his certainty and assertions about biblical authority begin to be soft and shaky. So what you see at the end of Bosch's book, 500 pages, is this. It remains extraordinarily difficult to determine what mission is. The entire study, this entire study, excuse me, has evolved from the assumption that the definition of mission is a continual process of sifting, testing, reformulating, and discarding. And I would make the statement, if mission can never be clarified due to both the limitations of exegesis and the evolution of God's mission according to the challenges of each generation, then anything the church determines what needs to be accomplished in her day is acceptable as mission. In other words, if we cannot go to the scriptures and look at the first century and see what the church did, not that we're reproducing first century culture, but what were the principles there? What were the fundamental aspects of what they were doing, believing that part of what they were doing was was to be imitated, especially when Paul talks about imitating me as I imitate Christ, especially when you see the apostles imitating what Jesus modeled, uh, that what they did was was something that was to be transferred to the church in following generations beyond just the transference of doctrinal knowledge. But there were things, there were, there were actions, there were, there were principles that were there. If we do not believe that we can go to the scriptures to exegete text to be able to understand those things, and we believe that God's mission is always evolving because cultural challenges are always evolving, then the church is going to be able to reset mission and redefine mission anytime she wants to based on her context. So what Bosch does is he moves toward an endorsement of these various historical paradigms throughout church history, and he basically says, we're not allowed to believe that anything goes, but they're all appropriate expressions throughout church history according to the church in her time, wherever that was. So let me try to kind of bring this to a little bit more clarity of what's going on here. And this is so relevant for today. Again, I, I gave you the, the warning at the outset that this is going to be a little bit more academic, a little bit more heady, but it's critical. So let me kind of bring it to, to more down-to-the-ground level, I guess. So in 1912, in 1912, Roland Allen, Anglican priest, Anglican missionary, writes this book in 1912. It's his most popular book. It's called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, question mark. And, and so by the title of that book, you can, you can clearly see what Allen was saying at in 1912. He was basically saying to the church, Missionary methods, are we going to go with St. Paul's or are we going to go with ours? Well, according to Bosch and according to many people today in the church, the answer to the title of Allen's book, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or ours? The answer is ours, of course. Ours is what is important because context is king. Or to say it another way, the definition of mission is in the eye of the beholder. 
So while critical contextualization is necessary, and, and it's, it's biblical, I mean, the incarnation is a contextualized act. Context is still not king. If we treat the first century actions found in the scriptures as simply contextual manifestations of their history and locations, then we move into a relativism when it comes to our understanding of what the church should be doing when it comes to her sending or her apostolic actions. And if the language of mission is nowhere in the scriptures, then we have even more reason to redefine mission as we desire in each generation in a multitude of contexts. So, so what, what, am I, what am I getting at here? Bosch is exactly right. In other words, if you go to the Bible and you can't find the language of mission, missions, missionary, then what is your source of, of, of authority, of, of understanding and defining such words? Well, you create those in the 16th century, and they morph across time. And so it's not there. The church has the freedom to, to reconstruct and deconstruct and redevelop missions as she desires based on her contextual environments wherever she may be found at any time. Now, again, this isn't ruling out context. This isn't ruling out the issue of engagement, critical contextualization. What I'm saying is, is that it is ruling out the primary source of guidance being the society in which the church finds herself. In other words, here's the thing. If, if we cannot find the language of mission in the Bible, and especially if we end up having a low view of biblical authority, then Christian love will establish the definition of mission and missions. Good intentions. You know, the church, you know, the people of the church, they want to love their neighbors. Absolutely. That's exactly what we need to be doing. And so if we can't come to the scriptures to find this understanding of missions, we don't see that terminology, that language there. It's Latin, it's developed in the in the 16th century. Then what's going to happen? The church is going to look around, both within the church and outside the church, and the heart of the Christians is going to guide and define what she believes is to be the mission in which she is engaging because we're to love one another. We're to love our neighbors. The 20th century, I don't have time to unpack all this, but the 20th century global mission con conferences, the congresses that took place, they spent enormous amount of time wrestling through definitions and terminology that does not exist in the Bible. You don't have this language there. So if the language is not there, then who determines the source of the definitions. Who determines the truth behind those definitions? I go back to saying it's the heart of Christians looking around at a broken society and looking around at a hurting church and defining what mission and missions and missionaries are supposed to be doing. Now, while that love is supposed to be there, that's a part of it, it begins to, it, I won't say it begins to, it, it overlooks the fact that the notion by which we should be thinking about the world needs to be tied and rooted into biblical terminology, and that is the language of the apostolic. The language that we see of the apostolic work of the church is what we need to return to. 
It is from there we need to develop our exegetical theology. It's from there that we need to come to an understanding of what it means to be about preaching the gospel, making disciples, witnessing, going forth and proclaiming this good news. What we find when we make those decisions is that missions, the missionary actions, the missionary activities of the church begin to get very narrow when they are compared to the way that the church in the 21st century is defining the terms of missions and missionaries. And I'll plan to unpack that and talk about that in another episode of Strike the Match. But what you see over time as the church grew and the church developed is that as the church shifted from doing more evangelistic work in many communities— and began doing more pastoral work, there was the need for mission societies and mission agencies to turn their attentions to the needs of Christians in those established churches. And we continue to see that more and more today. That goes all the way back to the first Jesuits and what they were doing in trying to reform a monastery. So again, when our language is separated from the scriptures, anything goes. We can be guided by some biblical channels, but Bosch is right. There is that uncertainty. I disagree with Bosch's presuppositions that we cannot know. I believe we can know by returning back to that language that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you see, folks, whenever the language begins to shift, the definitions begin to shift as well. And so we find ourselves in a day and time when we can talk about missions and the gospel does not have to be shared. So we talk about missions as if it's church planting, as if it's digging a well, as if it's putting a roof on a building, as if it's evangelism, as if it's medical relation related, as if it's teaching children of missionaries. We're at a point in time. Listen to this. We're at a point in time whereby the language of missions is is even connected to creation care. So, for example, in an article that came out in Missiology, Journal of Missiology, uh, Neil uh, Darug makes the following statement, and he represents a growing minority of people in the missions community. He says, God loves all of creation and that the mission of the Christian community is, listen to this, not restricted to human beings alone. Eco-missiology, a missiology that is concerned with the whole of creation insofar as human beings' impact on it, has begun to make a shift from a purely human-centered to earth-centered mission. Eco-missiology is about the part that the human beings may play in the reconciliation characterized by interdependence among all of God's creation. And I'll give you one other example before I wrap this up. You know, one of my favorite um, mission theologians right now, Old Testament scholars, uh, is uh, Chris Wright. And he has written this fantastic, large work called The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. And I I quote him. I've been influenced by him. I quote him extensively in my uh, book that I just finished on mission theology that hasn't come out yet. But, But I want you to listen to something that Wright talks about. He sees that the 
when it comes to the mission of God, he sees that the ecological sphere must be included in understanding the mission of God. I agree with that. I mean, the creation is groaning, and God is going to bring about the restoration of all things. Read the end of Genesis, and we, or excuse me, Revelation, and we see the, the, the new heaven and the new earth, which is a restoration that, that is a, a variation on Eden back in Genesis 1 and 2. I agree with what he's saying there, but, but, but here's the thing. He says, and rightly so, if you, if you move in this direction, there are practical implications. And so listen to what he writes, supporting this perspective, which here's where I disagree with him. He writes, those Christians who have responded to God's call to serve him through serving his non-human creatures in ecological projects are engaged in a specialized form of mission that has its rightful plane within the broad framework of all that God's mission has as its goal. So you see, folks, there are practical outworkings of this notion of talking about mission, missions, missionaries, uh, to the point whereby you can now have people involved in doing ecological care alongside people doing evangelism and church planting among unreached people groups, and both can be engaged in missionary activity as missionaries, doing missions. That's where we are. And so the issue of the shift of language is important. It is incredibly important. And what we need to do is we need to not go back 500 years, but we need to go back 2,000 years. And then I would say we need to even go all the way back to Genesis to develop our understanding of what it means to be engaged as kingdom citizens in carrying out God's plans in the world in which he has placed us, which involves the preaching of the gospel to all nations, the making of disciples of all nations, the bearing witness to the truths of Christ to all nations, and looking at how those who heard those words and those imperatives back in the first century, how they carried out this activity that we've come to call the mission of God in the world. What were they doing? How were they doing it? And not say, well, what they did was just based on cultural context, and therefore it's not relevant for us today because we've got different cultural issues today that we need to figure out how to address and engage with. While there's a place for us looking at the unique situations in which the church finds ourselves today and how we can engage in those situations, to be able to say there is nothing translatable from the first century in their global disciple-making practices and emphases to today, I think we've got a problem. And so in future episodes related to this series, I'll continue along the lines of the notion of the apostolic imagination rethinking contemporary missions. Hey folks, thanks again for checking this out. Appreciate your listening. Take care. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.